happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is episode number 96 on May 30th, 2018. And my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director in the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And joining me as always is Dr. Wes Fryer, joining us tonight from what he calls Tornado Country. Good evening, Wes. And are you dodging tornadoes this evening? Not tonight. Uh, we did have a little severe weather that was going to potentially come through. What we're really waiting for is some hot weather. So we have graduation at our school on Saturday, and there have been rumors of 105, perhaps, uh, you know, some, somewhere around there. But, you know, it just may be high 90s, and that's that's life in the Midwest of the USA. So I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, where we have just wrapped up classes last week and having our final week of meetings with teachers. And uh, I'm, I'm on a good path with Inbox Zero, but yeah, 81 messages today and, you know, still working on those before the show, but I'm, I'm fighting the good fight. But I'm excited to toss it up into the area of the Northeast to Minden, Massachusetts, to Dave Quinn, who is down in his bunker, probably not <laughs> hiding from tornadoes, I would guess, in Massachusetts, although they say they've been in all 50 states. Who knows? Uh, you know, oddly enough, there was one in uh, Connecticut not too far from uh, us recently. Um, but no, I have not, I've never encountered a tornado. Plenty of hurricanes our way. Um, but no, I, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, heard a lot of great things about the show and uh, glad to be a guest. Awesome. Well, we want to give a shout out to Beth Holland, who told us we definitely had to have Dave Dave on the show. And Dave, as, as our guest, we might just ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. What is your your educational role and, sure. and how did you come to find yourself in a basement bunker tonight? <laughs> um, so uh, I am the director of technology integration for the Menden Upton Regional School District. Um, I found a job that I didn't think existed. Um, just wanted to congratulate Jason on uh, completing his doctorate uh, because I know the challenging uh, process that can be. As you mentioned, uh, Beth Holland um, is, is about to wrap up hers, and I am in the midst of, of writing mine. Um, so uh, prior to starting at Menden Upton, I was a doctoral student at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, my advisor is Dr. Julie Coiro, who does a lot of work in online reading comprehension and um what we call personal digital inquiry. So how do we make learning more relevant with students developing their own questions? Um, but I found Mended Upton Regional School District um, just by chance and um, talk about a place that, that has a, a good alignment with my core values of trying to provide innovative, relevant learning for, for students. Uh, we're a one-to-one -one iPad district for grades five through 12. Um, so uh, on one hand, I help manage all the logistics of um, you know, distributing the iPads and, and getting them into the hands of students, getting the, the apps on, talking to teachers about what they need. But uh, what I really love about my job is that I'm able to work in the classroom with teachers um, on some really cool and creative projects, both using the iPad and then expanding, um, you know, beyond with, you know, Raspberry Pis. Uh, I was talking to Brian Crosby today. I don't know if you're familiar with his work about um, launching uh, weather balloons. Uh, we've got one. Uh, he's launching on Friday. We're launching uh, in June, um, and uh, it's just a, it's a really fantastic place to be. I'm supported by incredible educators um, and administrators who you know share core values and, and really empower me to do some cool things I do. So excited to be here! Awesome, awesome. That's great. 
Well, let's go ahead and get started on our topics for the week. And we have Dave to get started, and he wants to start on a topic that has been a uh, consistent topic here on the podcast, which is this week's news in uh, Alexa. So, Dave, uh, something big happened with Alexa this week that seems to be causing some consternation out in technology land. You want to quickly talk about what was uncovered recently related to Alexa? Yeah, so if I understand correctly, um, there was a family that was uh, having a conversation uh, about wood floors, apparently, um, and uh, apparently the, the wake word, uh, Alexa, or whatever the case may be, was triggered, and um, Alexa started recording the family's conversation, and then another uh, command was triggered, and the conversation was sent out to uh, some of the colleagues of the family, I believe it was the husband's colleagues, uh, they got a phone call shortly after saying, listen, you need to, to stop talking. Um, the, there's a recording in your house. Um, and, and at first they didn't take it seriously because, no, you know, it's, it's really skeptical. That's almost like the, the tinfoil hat land where, you know, somebody's recording you. Um, but, you know, coming back to that, that you're talking about flooring, that's the, the, the friend called and said, no, you're, you're really being recorded. I know you're talking about flooring right now. And that's when, you know, they, they pulled, uh, pulled the plug on Alexa, unfortunately. Um, I have pulled the plug on my Alexa, the dot right here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's raising some really interesting issues about, um, you know, how much is Alexa listening and how much is Alexa recording? Uh, and I think it's really pertinent for schools because there's been at least a small push, but a noticeable one to bring them into classrooms and using them as classroom assistments. So, um, I, I think we, we need to have a deeper dive about, uh, you know, what is Alexa doing? What is Alexa listening to? And where does that recording go? I think uh, these are really critical questions for educators to kind of wrestle with before we you know, just plop technology in our classrooms, even th that seem cool and innovative. I'd like to observe that other folks just seem to be screwing up cool technology that Google gets right. <laughs> you know, I mean, just like the Uber stuff with the self-driving car or whatever, and it seemed like, you know, Google's been doing a lot of great work with that. And then, oh, now we're suddenly all scared because there's, you know, a, somebody screwing up the technology. And, and similarly, I find myself <clears throat> defending uh, the Google Assistant, assuring, assuring my wife and others, no, there have been, re you know, people have researched this. They've, they've studied the packet capture. It's not constantly sharing, you know, and then you've got something like this that, basically throws grease onto the fire of mm -hmm. folks that are fearful of these new technologies and really wanting to push back against them. So I guess one of my takeaways is, I mean, all companies are not created equal and we definitely need to be, uh, you know, careful as we've talked about this on the show from a security standpoint in terms of internet of things, you know, we don't just want to adopt willy nilly, whatever, and bring it into the home, you know, because there are definitely things that are easier to hack than others, but it, this just seems like a pretty huge blunder and such a series of, of things that just did, wouldn't seem like it would, it would happen. Right. It's, I'm not, not, not having the right words to say that, but I mean, it's a had to happen and B and C and, and we just had to have a series of things. And it's like, really, I mean, that right. wasn't orchestrated by somebody. It, it just, it seems very, um, very uh, statistically improbable. 
<laughs> well, and, and I think that's an important piece here is that that one of the things that gets lost, I think, in the panic of these headlines and full disclosure, my doctoral research was on intelligent personal assistance. And so uh, I would never use the term expert to describe my knowledge of it. But I have done a lot of research in this area. And when you mentioned improbable, Wes, that's really what happened here, that apparently that and I've read a couple of, of articles that that had done an analysis, maybe even based on the original couple that reported the problems, that when they started to dig around in their Alexa settings, you can go into your Alexa app if you have um, one of the um, uh, uh, Amazon devices at home and you could see things that's recorded of you. You could see a pattern of all the things that it is recorded on your behalf and what it responded back with and that allows you to tweak and report things that are wrong and incorrect, etc. But, the you know, in this particular case, it was a one in a million, maybe a one in a billion shot that the things said in the order that they were said and the misunderstanding on the case of the Amazon device, and good evening, Lily, my cat, would like you to, to know that she also uh, is concerned about Alexa. But the piece of this that is critical is that you know, the likelihood of this happening is relatively low, but when things terrible like this happen in the middle of, of adoption up, or uprooting the adoption cycles, it's going to cause, I think, some, some some correction, if you will, and, and, and an opportunity for us to discuss, you know, do we want open microphones sitting in our home? I would say that, you know, Google, Amazon, um, you know, I, they have enough to lose that, of course, they wouldn't be stupid enough to open up microphones and record, record whole conversations. That's not exactly what happened here. But at the same time, you know, um, I, I hope that everyone that's working on open microphone properties, whether it's a cell phone or it's an intelligent personal assistant and a smart speaker, is, you know, extremely conscious that you should have ultimate control as the end user of when it's recording and when it's not. So I read this with a lot of trepidation too, both because I worry about the adoption cycle. I also worry about um, the counter reaction to these things, but it's indeed, you know, uh, I would call it slightly terrifying um, that, you know, the string of events could lead to sending your private conversation to a coworker. And I'll follow up with an article from TechCrunch. This is, we talked about this on the show when there was this murder case in Arkansas and they were subpoenaing the Alexa records. Um, this is from March 7th. After pushing back Amazon hands over Echo data in Arkansas murder case. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's another case that comes to mind in this whole topic. And I also think, um, it brings to mind some of Douglas Rushkoff's writing, particularly program or be programmed, um, because I think one of the chief uh, challenges here is he talks about this concept of the wizard, like the installation wizard. And it, it puts this kind of black box around the Alexa because folks don't understand how it works. And one of the, the great projects that um, we did with some of our students, I think it was based off of a, a Lifehacker um, article, where we had the students build an Amazon Alexa using a Raspberry Pi, um, a simple uh, PlayStation uh, microphone camera, and some speakers. And you can understand how a wakeboard works and just some of the nuances behind um, how this, this software, you know, integrates with the voice recognition piece of it. And I think that, you know, as we start to demystify some of this tech, uh, I think it starts to alleviate some of those fears. Um, but, you know, Jason, as you said, it, it, it raises some really complicated questions, particularly when, you know, they could be subpoenaed and, and would you want a microphone and what are, what are the trade-offs, right? So what are the trade-offs that come with these, these mul this multitude of benefits, um, having these devices? 
versus, you know, uh, access to, to these conversations. And one of the key things to keep in mind is that in the race for artificial intelligence with machine learning and all of this, it's all about data. And that's one of the reasons as we've been on the show talking about this, I've, I've actually, you know, gone Android with my personal phone. And in terms of smart assistant, we're not dabbling in two worlds. We're just, we're just using the uh, Google home. It, we, the companies need us to trust them. Right. And I think, I don't know if we have this article. It was the week we didn't go after the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Facebook usage has actually gone up. So there hasn't been a backlash, you mm-hmm. know, um, that's, you know, exciting for Facebook. Um, it's exciting for companies to see, you know, how willing we are to put these microphones and to, and to pour all this data. And, and I do think that there are tremendous benefits that AI is going to bring to us. Um, I'm, you know, I think I'm drinking the Kool-Aid that it's, it is going to be, uh, another revolution and it's going to in, in the next 20 or 30 years. And hopefully, you know, all of us on this call will, will see this happen. I mean, we're going to be um, able to access intelligent agents that are, are going to equal or surpass human cognition. And it's, it's going to be an incredible ride. It's not just a science fiction world. That's going to, you know, happen 200 years in the future for our great, great, great grandchildren. It's going to happen in our lifetime. So anyway, it's, uh, I think the question of trust and the the issue of regulation, we've got some articles this week about GDPR. Um, all of these things are really important, and students need to to be thinking about these and also considering, you know, what kinds of advocacy uh, they might want to be a part of, and and what you know might be perhaps moral obligations in terms of rights that we have to know about data that was being collected, the right that we have to potentially delete that data, have access to it, et cetera. I think there's a whole lot to this conversation and we're going to continue to see companies really push us to trust them because like I said, the AI revolution is riding on all the data and if they don't have the data, you know, they can't um, feed the, feed the beast as it were with AI. I want to add one other quick note related to, uh, uh, Dave, you mentioned people putting um, Alexas in the classroom, and actually I should say uh, uh, Echoes in the classroom, and then the A term, which yeah. you probably shouldn't Madam, keep uttering Madam out. A, yeah. yeah like we're, using, we're using profanity. We're, he, she, yeah, I know. she who must not be named. Yeah, so the Divine Miss A uh, in, in, in inviting her into her classroom. I actually spoke to some teachers at the NCCE conference in Seattle uh, this past February when I was presenting early results of my research related to uh, Siri. And one of the things that I'm more conscious about now, and, and I had made this decision well before this article uh, had, had, had put in place, but I happened to have a spare Echo that I was going to put in my office as basically a fancy Bluetooth speaker and smartphone, or I'm sorry, a smart speaker that I could utilize as a conference call phone. Uh, and I tend to wander quite a bit when, when I'm on the phone, and so the one that's currently attached to my uh, office phone isn't super great. So I was going to use it as a conferencing phone. And now, well, and I, I've been leery about this because I do trade in a lot of verbal student data all day long. I'm a, um, you know, a, 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 an administrator in, a, in a, uh, a distance learning program, which means I spend a lot of time on the phone talking about student data. And I, you know, thought twice before and hadn't set it up. And this kind of confirms it for me that I could see that, you know, if it's going to pick out different pieces of a conversation and use those as commands, and I'm not keeping an eye on that, that could indeed send private student data to where it doesn't ultimately belong. And so I am you know, more conscious of that now than uh, even before. It's something I think teachers should keep in mind before inviting these devices in their classroom. 
Yeah, I think I think you're okay so long as you don't have a student named Siri or Google. I think it's uh, the likelihood of having an Alexa is a slightly higher. So, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> okay, where West? You want to take us somewhere next? Yeah, let's go to Facebook. Um, I want to first just do a shout out for the the movie Solo. I know there was a bunch of kind of negative reports on it, and we we enjoyed it. We got to see that over the holiday weekend. I was surprised to see an advertisement from Facebook um, in the slew of ads. Man, we're we're very fortunate because of Netflix and just Apple Music or whatever. We do not hear many ads, and oh, it's just so painful to go to the movie theater and you know have to sit through thirty minutes of straight advertisements. But anyway, Facebook was aggressive trying to convince us that they've learned the, from their failures and they're to be trusted and they're here to help the web be the wonderful, you know, connecting place with pictures of your, you know, nieces and nephews or grandchildren or whatever. And, and it was it was interesting. And so the article that I have to share is from Wired on May 23rd. Facebook opens up about false news. And what I want to draw everyone's attention to is the 12-minute film that Facebook has created addressing fake news and the 2016 election hacks. I really think this is a fantastic video for students and teachers to watch to talk about these different issues and how they're addressing it. And I... I'm a little sad to see, you know, those statistics about just how it really there was there was no backlash. Really, we heard some pundits and some, you know, tech podcasters and journalists talk about, you know, quit Facebook, et cetera. But we're we're so in, invested in that ecosystem that it would take a real seismic event, which I don't know what that would be. We could contemplate on that um, to cause the you know, the world at large in, in droves to, to quit Facebook. So Dave, did, did, uh, any of the stuff happening in announcements with Facebook cause you to, um, uh, change your behavior? Where, where are you with Facebook and, and all that just personally? So, so interestingly, and, and, and in the effort of full disclosure, um, you know, I'm a school board candidate in Attleboro, right? I, I'm in my second term now. Um, so, you know, I, I've used, Facebook to kind of get messages out there and sponsored posts. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And I can see from kind of like a, a campaign, it's a, it's a fantastic way to reach targeted audiences that, you know, searching about, you know, who's interested in school issues based on that information. Um, and, you know, who within our, our local area would be interested in some of the things that I want to share. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I think, um, I found myself going to Twitter more often than Facebook. Um, Facebook's it's, it's really interesting because, um, you know, Facebook was launching right around the time that I was in college. And I think UMass Amherst was like the 13th or 14th school to get it. So I've kind of been along on the ride um, with it and just kind of seen its evolution um, from, you know, basically a, a you know, uh, who's cute in your, your college sociology class and to kind of like a, a more integrated platform. Um, so I find myself going to Twitter more for my news. Um, and I think that might be a function of just being in the education space. Um, so I'm actually seeing, and, you know, I mentioned to you that, um, you know, I've got a, a one-year-old now at home. So I'm, I'm seeing just kind of a, a shift to, um, you know, more the, the baby photo phase of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, one one good feature, particularly if you've got some friends who are sharing, um, you know, fake news or, or typical streamers posts um, is just to befriend but unfollow. 
Um, so that kind of helps you to, to, to build your own filter. Um, but I think, you know, what's really useful here, if we're going to circle back to, to education, uh, Mike Caulfield does a lot of work um, in uh, information literacy. Um, he talks about the four moves, um, which, you know, gives students a structure for when they encounter this type of information on their newsfeed, you know, to, you know, you know just uh, read across articles, um, do kind of like, it's, it's a quick search for or kind of like quick moves in order to um, diagnose or not diagnose, diagnose is not the right word, but um, look at articles. Look who's the author of this article. Where, where have you seen this platform? Is there a quick way like, you know, with um, PolitiFact or, or any sort of organization that you can kind of either quickly debunk and then, you know, swim up or read upstream. All right. So a lot of articles are based off of, um, you know, uh, linked articles within, so going right to the source. And then uh, as Sam Weinberg talks about over at uh, the Stanford History Education Group, you know, the information is in the network, so we should be teaching students to read across. And I think this kind of goes back to my earlier point here, is that um, we've got to help students to be to understand the mechanisms of these news feeds. So that way, uh, not that we can inoculate them, but you know, they can, we can live on these platforms and we, we're, we're much less likely to get uh, trapped by our own biases. Absolutely. So, and, and one other thing that I want to point out, um, I don't know where this matters in regards to the, the, the statistic, West that you're citing in regards to that Facebook seems to not be losing users. And I've read the same stuff too. But I did want to point out, and this, this had kind of uh, uh, jumped around uh, the internet a couple of times, or uh, in a couple of ways today. But um, I'm reporting this from Alexa, which is the not the smart speaker, sorry I said your name again, um, there's not the smart speaker, but the service that is now owned by Amazon that tracks internet sites and usage. And the headline today, and I think this was The Verge that initially reported this, and I'm the link in the show notes, and by the way, all of our show notes are at the website edtechsr.com. Um, if you look at Alexa, Reddit has uh, surpassed Facebook in regards to um, top sites in the United States. And it's it's hard to know exactly what those metrics are. Um, they cite Google as, as first, YouTube is second, Reddit now is third, and Facebook as fourth. But, fourth. but I do think that people are starting to escape Facebook, but not necessarily for locations that are fixing the problems of Facebook, right? I mean, Reddit is a good example of that. Um, the Reddit experience really uh, uh, changes pretty dramatically depending on what you're using it for. For me, it's a place to go and find out things about Linux and about uh, Cloud Ready, the, the Chrome OS alternative. Uh, Chromebooks have a really great Reddit space. But there are a lot of folks, um, including a lot of students that I know, that use it as a primary news source, and it happens to be a place where uh, a lot of maybe destructive dialogue goes on related to politics in, in, in the United States. And I think that is something that we need to keep an eye on. I, I think Facebook is going to clean up its act, and I think Facebook is going to figure out a way to not allow it to be used in such destructive ways. But let's be clear, Facebook isn't the problem. It's, it's people using Facebook that are the problem, right? In the same way that YouTube can be destructive, any social media can be destructive if, you know, it it amplifies voices or amplifies voices that are antisocial. And I think Reddit is a good example of a potential platform for that. Related article from Wired on May 24th, Facebook starts labeling political ads in the U.S. So Facebook is wanting to draw our attention to identify when those ads are political. As we've talked about on the show before, it really has to do with bad actors and identifying bad actors. 
Um, that is something that Facebook is evidently really ramping up or the number of people um, who are who are taking a look at at this and actually, you know, acting to to filter information. I mean, it's it's an army of folks um, who, who are doing this. So um, one positive, and this is an article I, I think I just put under Google, but this was from Mashable on May 26th. Um, the Google News app is a news junkie's dream come true. And I almost had this as my geek of the week, um, but I've been using that on my iPad and my phone. And, and the neatest thing about this, and I've been a fan of Google News for a long time, it's this little icon that looks like a blue square that's got a, a, red, li- a red line and a yellow line, and it's called Full Coverage. So, of course, there's a, an article about our chief executive and the latest scandal, Roseanne Barr, whatever. But then underneath it, I can say view full coverage. And so then I'm going to see an ABC article, a USA Today article, a Verge article, a Salon article. I have videos that are embedded with it. And I have Twitter, uh, you know, tweets from Twitter. Uh, really, really cool. And, and that, you know, I, I think that would be something to share with our students as well as we you talk about whether it's inoculation or just trying to become more savvy and more aware. How does information flow? How's it shared? And then how do we step outside of our bubbles and, you know, have an opportunity to hear different perspectives? And that's a very tangible way that we can do it. We can click on the full coverage and we don't just read articles that are coming up from our friends in Facebook or on Twitter. Um, I really applaud Google for that move. And I think, again, that's a specific thing to to share with students and encourage them to potentially look at as they consider current events. One of the things I really appreciate about Google is that they they find good ideas and put their own twists. So what you're talking about with this Google News kind of reminds me of a tool that uh, I see teachers use called All Sides, which is similar to ProCon giving um, the day's news from, from different perspectives. Um, and when you've got a service like Google pulling together all these different links, um, I think it, it's, it's incredibly useful and, and more comprehensive for students as we're trying to provide them opportunities to um, do a, a deeper dive and reading across um, and, and seeing things through, through different lenses, uh, which I think is critical. And I would add another strategy there, too, something from, from my uh, classroom days that's something I still use, actually, is that uh, when I was last in a class classroom, I'm a social studies teacher by training, and one of the things I found very difficult is that if you're signed into your Google account, it tends to serve things to you that are um, things that you, it, it thinks you want to see, right? Like things you would be you would you click on, generally speaking. So if you tend to, to click on more conservative websites, it would serve more conservative websites to you across its, its search properties including new sites um if you tend to click on 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 more liberal sites you know it would cater that to you and so something that i came up with uh with some of my debate students was we created a google custom search engine i'm going to go ahead and put the link to that um in uh in the show notes but it's it's cse.google.com and what you can do with a custom search engine is is limit the sites that that custom search engine looks at and so we came up with as a as, as a classroom group 25 websites that we agreed on together tend to lean a little more conservative. We picked 25 websites that we tend to lean a little more liberal, and we created actually two uh, searches. We created fair and balanced search, which you can guess what that is, and then the vast left-wing conspiracy search. And those two search engines searched, or served as an opportunity for us to change your perspective a bit, that after searching through mainstream news sites, if you want to see this from a little more of a bend of one way or the other, 
here's the way to do that in a way that you're, you know, you're asking uh, 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 Google to to move towards one end of the spectrum or the other. And I think those discussions are, are really important. And that's also one of the reasons why that I bristle a little bit when I hear, you know, we're going to have the students research for a while, right? Research really should be a critical thinking activity and not a search activity. Search is really way down in the list of priorities on a good search. Uh, good Google searches, good Bing searches, good Yahoo searches, whatever your uh, brand of search T is, really should be a critical thinking exercise. It's not about typing a term in and getting articles back. It's about typing the right terms in and then evaluating the sources you get in return, which is a critical thinking activity, not a search activity. Here's a metaphor, possibly. Uh, if we were thinking of, of the research process and harvesting as, you know, finding the data, the information that I have the Ask Eric, you know, article, I've printed it. It cost me 10 cents a page to, you know, print from the, you know, bowels of the library where I, where I found it on Microfish. I mean, those days are, are so gone. And now it's really about curating it. What are you going to do with that? And then how, how are you going to think critically about it? And I had a conversation actually today with, with our debate coach who helps us out in the technology department, especially in the summer. I was asking him how technology had changed debate. Like if it was, cause he's about to go to some camps and do things and it's, you know, radical ways that it's changed. And one of the things he commented on was, you know, it's, it's so easy now to get the evidence. And so it might even be more challenging for students to get deeper into the articles and to get more background information because in the past they would have to just cull through a, a much, they would just have to do a lot more digging and reading on their own before they would get, you know, those pieces of information. And, and I think, I mean, that's a challenge for me as well. You know, I mean, how many times have I shared an article without completely mm -hmm. reading the article, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm scanning headlines. So I think that's happening a lot. And I'm not sure what the solution to that is other than challenging our students and challenging each other to just engage in deeper conversations where we're perhaps, you know, citing and explaining and elaborating, you know, beyond just the, the sound bite of the headline. I think, uh, I think it was on, um, Don Wetrick's podcast, but Dan Pink, um, brought, was asked what would be the most useful class that you could give to a high school student. And, uh, he said one on cognitive biases. And I think the the idea of confirmation bias and just making students aware that we look for information that confirms our paradigm. I mean, this is not even tech issues. This is tech just amplifies it to a certain extent. If we can make students aware of, you know, the, the search or the human nature to reaffirm the paradigm, I think that that's a really powerful weapon. You know, um, as you talked about critical thinking, um, I, I think that's that's a, a, a core component of um, doing this. I think the other piece of it that was mentioned earlier, just, um, you know, I'm sh sure your audience is well aware, but if there's anybody new, but just, you know, either clearing your search history, clearing your data and seeing, comparing the before and after search results, I think is really illuminating for people, um, particularly for, for students and even some teachers. Um, but secondly, I, I really like the idea of the custom search engine. Um, Julie Coyro had built that for one of her, um, uh, research projects, but it, it's fantastic for elementary teachers who are concerned about students going out onto the open web and how do I make sure students are, are, are getting the right sources. It's kind of a nice way for, for those students to kind of wade in. Um, they, they, the teacher service curator putting, as you said, um, the, the list of sites together, um, but it also gives students an opportunity to, you know, learn how search terms work and, and play around in kind of a safe, safe area. I think it's, it's fantastic. 
Excellent. Okay, well, I'm going to push us in a more, uh, I don't know, hardware-y direction. Um, we've been talking quite a bit lately in the expansion of available Chromebooks uh, in, in the pipeline right now, and I want to point out two articles that, that popped up in the last week from, uh, let's see, my favorite Chrome website now is Chrome Unboxed. But the first one is that we had mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there would likely be a Chromebook tablet that would be in the works, and it's here now. Um, the Chromebook Tab 10 from Acer is the Chromebook tablet that we've apparently all been waiting for, and it's now official and apparently will be available uh, for sale soon um, from various channels, including ones in education. And we've talked about this in the past, uh, but in essence, it would be kind of a, a pretty uh, powerful tablet in that a simple uh, uh, Intel chip, which I believe that that, that these particular uh, tabs have, would be more than capable of running the vast majority of Android apps in a good and stable way. It doesn't come with a keyboard. You can, of course, hook a Bluetooth keyboard to it, and I think it has a USB port, which means it'd be easy to plug a USB keyboard into it. But that's that's official now, and it's in the, the, the uh, pipelines. But I think the bigger article that will probably will make it into schools and kind of answers one of the criticisms that Wes and I have had of the current crop of Chromebooks is the Spin 13 is Acer's a newest Chromebook that was announced a couple weeks ago at a global press event, I believe in New York City. And the Acer Spin 13, it seems like it's the value version of the high-end pixel-style uh, Chromebooks that have been released by Google, and there's a couple competitors in, in the HP space as well. And what's really exciting about this is that uh, these are, uh, my understanding, very uh, high-end devices. If you want to pay for a faster chip or pay for more RAM, you can, which means those of you that are power users that run into the 4-gigabyte uh, limitations of most standard Chromebooks or the relatively slow Intel or ARM-based chips, you can buy uh, advanced chips to do that. And so I'm personally very excited about that. I, I already have a couple of high-end Chromebooks that I love to use. I wouldn't necessarily be in the market for one. But particularly as a program administrator, especially since we are having a conversation about replacing, we're in a, an adoption cycle for some of our office staff right now that are carrying around low-end Windows uh, 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 laptops, we are thinking about maybe going in the Chromebook direction, mostly for security purposes. So I guess maybe I'd start by tossing this to you, Dave. What's the Chromebook situation in your district, and are you interested at all in a medium or high-end Chromebook for implementation in classrooms? So I think what really jumped out to me was the price point and, and seven hundred dollars I think is I think the, the quote that I had here was that uh it comes from the Chromebook uh Chromeonbox.com. So uh that's pretty tough language to decipher as the clearest competitor is the Pixel Book with pricing right around a thousand, being competitive simply means beating that mark. I mean a thousand I look at through like a student lens. A thousand per device. Uh, we just, I mean, we just went through a refresh process with our, our iPads. The iPad six is really coming in uh, to be competitive with some of those, you know, entry level Chromebooks. Um, we like the iPad for, you know, digital media capabilities, um, but the, the financial cost is is really a concern for, you know, districts in Massachusetts. I don't know what it's like out in your neck of the woods. I think you know some of our areas tend to be a little bit more affluent and can can swing it. Um, but, you know, I, I think as, as a country and as a state, we need to figure out a way to provide uh, devices and stability for school budgets to make 
you know, this a, a little bit easier to swallow, particularly with the refresh process. We call it, you know, looking for the school, um, you know, school committee, we call it, the, you know, technology, the fourth utility, right? Like you can't, you can't, you got to treat it like your, your water, your electricity, um, you know, it's, it's not a, a nice to have, it's a must have. And, and we've got to figure out a way to, to make it a reality. Absolutely. I like the way you talk. I'm really excited about it. I, I just had my daughter run and grab uh, our my latest uh, tool to play with. So this is the Lenovo um, 300E. Um, I don't have a number two pencil, but we were playing with this today. We just unboxed these. Uh, we re- refreshed one cart, and we're adding one additional cart at our middle school. Um, and so this this is the the convertible. So being able to to be hinged like that, it's a touch interface, so it can run Android apps. And a number two pencil functions as the stylus, which is one of the things wow. I'm most excited about from a math and also just an annotation standpoint. Whether that would possibly be, you know, English, English papers or whatever. Um, but to this article, I'm, I'm really interested. And in. again, if, if folks from our score are listening, remember, I'm thinking out loud, I'm not saying we're doing this, but I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, number one, the return on investment and the lifespan of a higher end Chromebook. We have a five year refresh with our faculty devices and we're about 95% MacBook Air now. I mean, we've been MacBook Pro and we just, with the latest refreshes have, have gone with the Air. Boy, there are a few folks that are doing some things that require a full blown PC or a full blown Mac, uh, Apple laptop. But not very many. And most of, of the stuff, we made a transition to a new student information system a couple of years ago, all web-based. You know, it's just it, we don't need to do much other than the web. And, and then it's so powerful to be able to do those things on the web. So if, if we could look at something in the $600, $500 price point, I mean, that's about half of a MacBook Air. Um, and, you know, Jason's talked about with his Pixelbook and being able to have that extra RAM, especially, is this going to have an i5 or an i7 in it, Jason? Do you know? Or they, they scale up that way, yeah. And in fact, it's uh, the the great thing about the model here that has not been the case of of almost all, uh, even medium to high end uh, Chromebooks, is that you can configure these. You can add in faster chips. You can add in more RAM. You can add in uh, more um, hard drive storage. And that doesn't matter for, you know, 90% of users, but for the 10% it does matter, I think that could make more converts amongst power users. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, when you look at needing to keep this for five years or more, you know, the the idea of being able to have a higher-end processor, I mean, are, we're very happy with, with the Chromebooks that we have now that are generally pretty low-powered processors. So thinking about an i5 or an i7 and the longevity of that and um, you know, who knows? There, there may be applications that are going to outstrip that kind of capability, but we've talked about that where, you know, laptops seem to have kind of plateaued where it's like, do you really need more? I mean, we, we joke there's a guy, well, our debate coach, uh, you know, he, he had, I don't know how he got 12 gigs of RAM, but we tease him. Ooh, that was the sweet number, 12 gigs, you know, but I mean, at one point, I remember thinking in the not too distant past, eight gigs. Do you really need it? I mean, isn't that just overkill? Um, and and no, I think it would be it would be fantastic to have eight or sixteen. But beyond that, I just it's um, it's very compelling. And and we've talked about this before too. What we can do um, on the web is is really powerful. So. Um, I'm sure, Dave, you guys are, are using your iPads and probably not only creative ways to make media, but I'm going to guess that you probably have curriculum since you're standardized in that way. Do you guys have, you know, some iBooks curriculum? And is that, 
an, an yeah. affordance that you guys are enjoying? It's not just open web, but you're you're using the iPad and iBooks in that way. Um, well, I I, I still think, uh, to many respects, Pearson is still um, a big player in our neck of the woods. Um, so a lot of our textbooks are all through that app. Um, we're really excited about the the open education resources that are coming down the pike. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to uh, interact with uh, Christina Peters, who you know worked at the uh, the DOE uh, Office of EdTech. Um, trying to set up a meeting with her to you know just find out what's up out there um, because you know again putting on my school committee hat here for a second. Yeah, it's about allocation of resources, right? Like you, we, we can afford anything, but we can't afford everything. Um, so how do we make the most out of the budget that we have in order to provide access and opportunity for students? Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me um, and one of the kind of the, the game changers with, um, I hate that term, but game changers with um, the, the newly released iPad is the interaction with the, the pencil. Um, it'd be great if a stylist just worked um, like you were talking with your Lenovo, the number two pencil. Um, but I think that's a kind of an added feature. I feel like Apple's really gotten the message that, that, uh, Chromebooks are, are providing what districts need and that the districts were unwilling or unable to provide or pay for that premium, uh, for iPads for a long time. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a really interesting move on their part. I'm actually kind of curious about, you know, in your neck of the woods, what the perception of iPads versus Chromebooks, it seems like both of your, although you said you have you have uh, MacBook Air, so just kind of. Well, yeah, we've got we've got about 125 or so iPads under management, uh, mainly in shared we, in our uh, band. They've they've got them for all the students, but you know we've got districts that have over 10,000 in our Oklahoma City metro area. You know that are that are heavily invested. So we're we've. I just I don't think Apple in their last event really. It communicated that they got it in terms of the management side. I mean, here we had 40 right. new Chromebooks today, and in less than an hour, three of us, you know, had all of them enterprise enrolled and ready oh. to go. You know, they're <laughs> ready. They're ready to go for for any student that needs to log in. And I know we laugh at yeah, this. We're we switched over to TabPilot as our mobile device management, and you know, I've I've had our football coach's new iPad on my desk now for three days, and I I need to, you know, it's going to take me maybe um, you know 10 or 15 minutes, but. When I got to touch a device and spend that much yeah. time on it, you know, if I was doing more, maybe I would be more efficient. But on the Apple News, a nine to five Mac article from May 27th is kind of intriguing. Little rumor mill here. Apple continues to work on ultra flexible living hinge design for MacBooks. And so if you look at that article, it looks to me a lot like the, well, actually, I think they have a, I think it's a picture of um, the surface, the surface book um, by, by Microsoft. So, it's this idea of a flexible hinge and then you can detach. So on the Lenovo, which I've been, you know, tapping along here, uh, no, no removing that. Um, I, I think Apple needs to innovate in that space. You know, Apple right now is still telling us we need to have separate devices, you know, buy your iPad, buy your laptop. And I, I, I think I see this as a, a device of the future. So if Apple, this is a patent that, that, and of course we can't just say since they have a patent, they're going to, um, you know, definitely, um, you know, produce this. Um, but here's how Apple described the hinge quote, an enclosure for a laptop may be created from a rigid material, having a flexible portion defined around approximately a midpoint of the material. The flexible portion may allow the rigid material to be folded in half and thus acts as a laptop clamshell. And then it talks about the top portion being able to support a keyboard trackpad and, and separate. So for me, I don't, 
There's two things that could, well, three things that could be really exciting that Apple could do. Number one, and I think I heard this on another podcast. We didn't talk about it. They should just flat out buy a textbook company and then just give away the textbooks, you know, have them create and just give them away because we have OER and we don't have, I mean, that would really uh, ignite a lot of excitement uh, for for iPads and and Apple technology if if that was just, you know, given away and and really disrupt the textbook industry, which we need in K-12. Number two, if Apple would do something like this with with a laptop that had uh, a touchscreen and then actually had a detachable, essentially, iPad that, that could separate. And then the other thing is just management, you know, really uh, seizing the, the, the ethic of the Google admin console and then bringing that to the iOS world. But it would it'll it would take a while. But, hey, man, Apple, do they have unlimited resources? No, but it's probably pretty close to that. So we'll have to see because innovation is this interesting thing, right? Who would have thought Microsoft would be as innovative as it is today? And I may be struck by lightning saying that here. <laughs> I do. I do think that they're innovating in, in many ways with with where they're going. And so Apple's always been known for innovation and shouldn't count, shouldn't count them out of all this because they're, they're paying attention. Um, but it's a big ship to steer and, you know, they've got a whole lot of, of money riding on these different products that, um, you know, have, have brought in lots of revenue and continue to bring in a lot. So, well, and one thing we haven't, we haven't done it this week in Apple hand wringing lately, uh, despite the fact that there is much hand wringing across the lands about Apple and full disclosure, I'm a lover of all three platforms and I use a Chromebook and I use an iMac at work and I have a Mac laptop or a, a PC laptop and blah, blah, blah. But the one thing that we haven't really talked about and part of it's because I don't think Wes, you have access to one either, but the new MacBook Pros that have the new scissor keys um, are failing at an unprecedented rate, if you what's ask. A, what's a scissor key? The, it's the new style of keyboards on the the uh, MacBook Pros in the last two years. From and the, t- the ones that have the touch bar? It's a new yeah, keyboard the, Yeah, style. well, I think those are touch bar ones, and then... The other way you can tell them is because they have the big, ginormous uh, touchpad, the big, rectangular touchpad, and... Um, I, I'm not in the market for, well, I'm not in the market for any computer because I own way more computers than I need. But the, the thing that's interesting about the MacBook Pro is that, or actually the last couple of, or several innovations, um, from our good friends at, at Apple is it seems like they've been somewhat bent on, on, on failure. The Mac Pro is a great example of this. They took, uh, the most popular computer for power users, which was the so-called cheese grater Mac, the ginormous metal boxes that had upgradability. They replaced them by the, trash can um, uh, Death Star uh, Mac Pros that were not upgradable in the way that the big cheese graders were, and they stopped releasing regular hardware upgrades with that, and then they coupled that with the release of new MacBook Pros. They're actually, the, the hardware is beautiful. The screens are beautiful. The uh, the actual uh, outsides are beautiful. They're super thin and light, which is one of the reasons why they've moved unofficially away from the Air model, but then their keyboards are starting to fail at an unprecedented rate. And if you ask even some of the Mac um, uh, super fans, and I'm referring to Renee Ritchie at imore.com, he recently tweeted and wrote an article that his keyboard is finally failing. It's, he's unable to use it consistently. So something's going on at Apple. I'm not willing to say that... You know, it's the lack of Steve Jobs that's there, but it feels like they do need an internal fierce advocate to say, if we're going to stay competitive in this environment, we have to be well beyond our competitors. It's not good enough anymore to to be competitive. We need to be the, you know, medium and high-end manufacturer that has elegance in a way no one else does, and that's just not the way it feels like Apple's running their ship right now. And I don't know if... 
you know, this is making me a little nervous because I just my uh, my school issued uh, MacBook Pro died. I just got a, a new issued MacBook Pro, um, and it's it's got the keys you described. But the other piece of it is the USB C ports, right? So right. we had, I mean, that's that's going to be a challenge for districts. Now maybe it's one of those things where we we do our hand wringing and then we we you know how do we ever get by without these ports? But a lot of our setup is designed for traditional USB. So there's a lot of adapters, a lot of dongles. Um, you know, we we were a little concerned about what happens when we don't have, you know, a, a, a CD or DVD drive in the computer. But, you know, we found a way to to move on and navigate. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how Apple seems to force your hand a little bit um, with some of the innovations that they take. You know, the uh, now we're moving to earbuds. No more wired you know, uh, earphones, unless you got an adapter now. Um, you know, I think, I think, and th- maybe this goes back to our Facebook discussion that people just adjust, right? They like it and they, they've accepted it. And this is just the way, you know, our, our world is. So we, you know, we, we continue to figure out what way to move on. Um, but one last point, and we were talking about this in the, in the tech office about, you know, uh, <laughs> how has Apple not come up with a, a touchscreen device yet? for their laptops. I mean, you know, you've got this, this great iPad, you've got your great MacBook, uh, you know, fleet. Um, and somehow they just seem resistant. Maybe this, this new, uh, hinge is the, the missing piece. Um, but you know, I think Wes, you were, you were talking a little bit about it, but we, the Logitech case that they had, um, I think it's the rugged something, I'm trying to blank on it, which has the detachable keyboard, um, you know, money there was no object. That's the direction that we wanted to go in. Um, but, you know, I think that was the closest that we could see where the iPad looked and felt and interacted almost like having, you know, a, a small computer. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the future holds for Apple. Quick shout out to the, the chat room. We haven't mentioned the chat room tonight, but we do have a, a live YouTube chat room. And Scott Summer has been there sharing uh, different links and ideas. And uh, he just shared a shout out to Kevin C. Toffel. Um, actually to his IOT podcast with Stacy Higginbotham. I've been uh, reading and listening to Kevin for quite a while and he is, he's awesome. He's a former Googler, but his website, and actually I most recently heard him on the Twit podcast following the Google uh, developer conference. Jason, maybe that's what we should do. We should do an EdTech SR like meetup and we can, we could do an unconference at the, at, at the Google event. And anyway, I'm just throwing that out there, but uh, his website is about Chromebooks.com. And so he's doing a really nice job tracking all kinds of things that are going on with Chromebooks, reviews, um, how-to articles, et cetera. And um, I just, I'm going to be so excited to see Apple innovate in that space. I mean, I don't know if this Hinge article is it, but, you know, it's, I think it's the innovator's dilemma, right? I think that's Clayton Christensen, and it's like Microsoft being so successful with Windows and Office. How are they going to innovate beyond that when that's the cash cow? And, my, and companies get into that kind of situation. And so with the iPhone, with the iPad, um, particularly the consumer size of that market, I mean, that's the lion's share of what Apple is, is focused on. But education's always been important to the heart of Apple. I mean, I... You know, I owe a lot of my personal, I think, identity as a teacher and someone thinking differently and wanting to not just, you know, fall into the fold of Novell Windows, the nightmare of uh, my early days of teaching in the mid to late 90s. You know, it's Apple is a beacon of light in terms of student learning and engagement and video and media and so much. And so. Um, yeah, that, that would, that'll really energize me and excite me. 
that I think that it'll be very important for them to be attentive to price point and to be attentive to management because, you know, we can have a fantastic device, but if it's going to be a thousand dollars, you know, that's not going to excite educators and, and get us thinking about the return on investment and what we can sustain, you know, with, with budgets like the sixth generation iPad at $300. You know, if we didn't have to add a keyboard to it and we didn't have to add a hundred dollar pencil, you know, if, if this, right if this was yep. a device and, and it was ready to go, it had everything that we needed. Okay, we are quickly coming to the top of the hour. Our hour has, has gone very quickly uh, this time around. Um, I want to point out one quick article, and then we could go around the room to see if there's anything else that we want to uh, tackle before we uh, hit the geeks of the week. But uh, a piece of breaking news here. I've tweeted this out a couple of times, and um, I, I have a kind of a comment related to this. Uh, the FBI has warned that you should reboot your router, that apparently a lot of popular Wi-Fi routers uh, have been hacked by uh, devious Russian forces and, in fact, uh, have spread malware into them. And it's the contention, apparently, of FBI techies that, in some cases, it, it the, the cleanup is as easy as unplugging your router and restarting it again. And I was looking for the article earlier today to accompany this, but a surprising number of routers haven't been rebooted, in some cases, for years because they just run, uh, whether you're seeing it run efficiently or not, and... If you haven't had a power outage or haven't unplugged it manually yourself, you may be running um, older software that needs to reboot itself to be able to uh, update. And in the case of the potential malware that the FBI is warning about, uh, it's temporary and would go away if you rebooted your router. Um, I would also note to you that, and I was also looking for the article on this earlier today, and I think it was in a um, an episode tech thing a couple of months ago, but it's also a good idea if you are a cable internet subscriber or you use a, a box to give you DSL in your home to provide broadband internet access, once in a while unplug those bad boys and plug them back in again because if there are firmware updates, oftentimes those devices will not reboot themselves and by unplugging and plugging it back in again, you may actually get faster or more stable internet out of those devices. So public service announcement, uh, reboot your router, apparently as a matter of national security. And we've got to mention at least briefly the GDPR. Um, that is an yeah. acronym that will probably make many of your friends and relatives' eyes glaze over, but that is the general um, uh, data protection regulation that just went effective this past Friday. And we have probably all seen a number of emails in our inboxes talking about privacy and updated regulations. This, in my opinion, is definitely a case where Europe is leading America. However, what's going to happen with this kind of regulation? How many companies are going to throw in the towel? Today's meet, we talked about a couple weeks ago on the show, throwing in the towel in large part because they're not going to, they think, be able to meet, you know, these kinds of demands. You know, where is the data? Can you house the data in our country? Um, but I think it's very positive, as we've talked about, just like with credit companies, we can at least apply a few times a year to say, what data do you have about me? And we can appeal to correct it if it's wrong. You know, in the same way, we should be able to know what does Facebook, what do these companies have with us or about us, and then have some ability to delete that um, or to, you know, do something with it rather than simply having this amorphous, you know, collection of stuff in the cloud that, 
that companies have access to and we don't. And it's kind of weird. So Europe is leading in some respects, but it's going to be important to see whether that has a chilling effect on innovation. Um, my personal view is that we're going to have to do something like that in the United States. It's not going to be enough to just tell the companies, regulate yourself and, and be better. You know, we, there is an important you know place for regulation and all of that. Right. We don't have time to get into the details of this, but I did leave an extremely great link in our show notes, again, at our website at techsr.com. But Accord DNA had an excellent article last week called GDPR Explained in Five Minutes, Everything You Need to Know. And it breaks down what is the GDPR and, more importantly, what implications might it have to businesses. And I will say that, uh, you know, I, I had heard about this anyways because I, I read a lot of tech news. But if you haven't been reading tech news, you certainly received, you know, a large number of emails. My personal Gmail account, which goes back, um, you know, nearly 15 years now, that account was, uh, I probably received a, a hundred different notices about updates to privacy policy. And it does give you a sense on how global the internet is, right? Like it's not just because you can go to websites in other countries that Europe is going to end up de facto uh, uh, impacting privacy for users in the United States because most large internet properties in the United States are global in their audience. And so they're going to have to update to do this. And one of the articles I left related to that is immediately after GDPR went into effect, Facebook and Google were sued for billions of dollars based on uh, 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 not meeting regulations of the GDPR. Hey, Dave, anything else you want to pick up on before we jump into our show-ending geeks of the week? Uh, no, I, I, th- I think we've covered it all, particularly coming up at the, the top of the hour. I just uh, really comprehensive. I felt like this was as much a, a learning experience as a sharing experience and just putting stuff on my radar. So really comprehensive links, uh, which I appreciated. Yeah, I think that's why Wes and I do whatever we can actually gives us an opportunity to, 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 to read and process. So, uh, Wes, why don't you start with your Geek of the Week? Excellent. Well, I have been completely entranced watching Hawaii and Mount Kilauea and Pele do her thing. Uh, it really is an eruption probably of the century. We haven't seen an eruption like this in a long time. I've been on YouTube uh, searching for Hawaii, you know, just seeing it's incredible. I mean, it's if you've been to Yellowstone and you've seen um, geysers, it, it's just the fountains, the size, the, the volume. It's incredible. So anyway, that's caused me to look at some other volcano stuff. And I discovered a fantastic original documentary called Into the Inferno by Werner Herzog. And it's amazing because this is about the science of volcanoes, super volcanoes, but it's also how superstitions have universally grown up around you know, the volcanoes. And, and really, how could they not? I mean, when you see that lava and you think about, you know, even with our 21st century eyes, the awe that we look at that and, and, and also the limited ability we have, like the weather, to be able to predict what's going to happen next. Is this going to just keep on going for months and months or, or is this it? Is it going to end and, and whatever? So Into the Inferno, about a two-hour movie, well worth your time on Netflix. Excellent. Thank you, Wes. What about you, Dave? Uh, I'm going to split mine in half, uh, one internal, one external. Uh, the internal, just want to do a quick shout out to um, the Inspired Learning Project. Uh, Beth Holland was our, our keynote for our Inspired Learning Convention. It's a uh, passion project launched by our principal, uh, John Clements, uh, Nimuk Regional. Uh, he does it with uh, myself, uh, his associate principal, uh, Marianne Moran, and um, our assistant superintendent, Dr. Maureen Cohen. Um, check it out. We try to share innovative practices built off of the ideas of uh, Will Richardson's um, 
modern learning and also uh, Scott McLeod's four big shifts. How do we how do we make that a reality? Um, but my tool is something that we've been using a lot in our district recently is um, the Hummingbird Robotics Kit, uh, which comes out of Carnegie Mellon. Um, we don't have a traditional we have a, a, an APCS class, but how do you get programming opportunities in the hands of students? who might not traditionally be interested in computer science. Um, we had a, it's a really accessible, um, basically modified Arduino board uh, that um, helps bring coding to students in an accessible way and, and uses the, uh, we use the language SNAP um, to, um, you know, build really simple box-based robots, but um, it, it makes programming accessible. It makes, um, you know, computing and brings it to life. We've been using it to um, uh, illustrate children's books. We've been using the power of Twitter to share those robots that we built. Um, you can see on my Twitter feed, um, you know, we've been sharing with the authors and the authors have just been, you know, uh, flipping out and had a really positive response. Um, so, you know, for educators from K-12, uh, Hummingbird Robotics Kit are, are, is my Geek of the Week great tool um, for your classroom. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And I'd like to share a quick tip. Uh, I've been traveling a lot this spring. Uh, last week, I was in Washington, D.C. with my wife and our exchange student. We visited proper sites across the district and had a great time. But something that I had discovered a couple of months ago and I was able to put into action this past weekend, uh, I had two five-hour flights, uh, one from Portland to Washington, D.C., and then Washington, D.C. to Seattle uh, before I, I, I was able to catch a plane back to Montana. And a five-hour flight is a long time um, to not do something with. And so I worked both on the way there and the way back. And I do take advantage of GoGo in-flight uh, Wi-Fi, which is great. Not always fast enough to do much with, but enough to stay connected and uh, do email and work on Google Docs. And I discovered something a couple months ago that ended up being a big uh, time and money saver for me. If you buy your pass before you get on the airplane, the price is sometimes a third of the price of what it costs to get an all-day pass once you're uh, in the air and on the system. So as an example of this, I believe I was quoted $39 uh, 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 a couple of months ago to get an in-flight pass to last me uh, the flight. Um, as it turns out, by buying it ahead of time, I paid $19, so half the price of what that would have uh, cost me. I would also note for those of you that travel often and are T-Mobile customers, you can also get a free hour of in-flight Wi-Fi if you're a T-Mobile customer, and that's something I've also taken advantage of to, to as well on relatively short flights on big airplanes. So go, go in-flight wireless, buy your pass beforehand. Um, so uh, where can we find our crew out on the Internet? Dave, where can we find you when you're not speaking on Wednesday evening podcasts? Uh, so I am on Twitter at uh, at Eduquin, E-D-U-Q-U-I-N-N. You can also find me and my colleagues on the inspiredlearningproject.weebly.com, um, posting blogs that uh, help teachers get actionable in the classroom. Love to see you there. Love to get submissions from, you know, teachers from all across the country on how you make learning more relevant and inspiring for your students. Excellent. Thank you. And Wes, where can we find you on the internet? I'm W. Fryer on Twitter and my blog speedofcreativity.org has some periodic blogs and podcasts. And I will be um, adding this summer to our digital citizenship website, which is digsit.us. And uh, hopefully this next year, getting some narrated slideshows that will be student created to talk about some of these issues and, you know, focusing on conversations short little videos with suggested questions that teachers can use with students to have conversations about digital citizenship. 
Excellent. And my name is Jason Neifer, and you can find me on the Twitters at TechSavvyTeach. I also blog for the Northwest Council of Computer Education at blog.ncc.org. And I'm currently in the middle of writing several articles about uh, using uh, advanced features of common everyday software to make yourself more productive, particularly in context of online learning, but it would also work with blended learning. So look out for more information about that um, in coming weeks. This thing here we're doing though right now this is our podcast this is the edtech situation room we are here on wednesdays at 9 p.m central 8 p.m mountain time three o'clock utc for those of you that want to join us in europe live in the middle of the night but you don't have to be here live we'd love to have you but you can always just find us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated which includes stitcher on most podcast apps we're in the itunes library or you can download little tiny uh, files audio files on our website edtechsr.com or find us on YouTube. Uh, feel free to drop in live. Feel free to listen to the podcast later. In either case, we'd love to have you and want you as part of the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night.